From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, author, historian, and senior editor of the National Review, Richard Brookheiser, joins me to discuss his latest book, Give Me Liberty, a history of America's exceptional idea that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Nationalism has been a global political phenomenon of recent. Though it has always been around in some form, there has been a rise in nationalism of recent in countries as diverse as Brazil, the United Kingdom, France, and the United States. Some would offer that nationalism has been the dominant political ethos of the decade. But what exactly is nationalism? Is it nativist impulses? Is it love for country? Or is it something else? Far from offering a one-size-fits-all definition, my guest, Richard Brookheiser, seeks to provide an answer specific to America's unique form of nationalism in his latest book, Give Me Liberty, a history of America's exceptional idea. Author of myriad books, many deal with the nation's founding, Brookheiser is also senior editor at the National Review. Richard Brookheiser, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me again. Mm-hmm. Now, when I think of uh, the books you've authored, I mean, you, you talk about individuals such as Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and Governor Morris. And the last time you were on, we had a, uh, an in-depth uh, uh, discussion on your m- most recent book about John Marshall. Uh, was there a reason uh, you wrote Give Me Liberty at this moment, at this time, because I guess in, in, the, in, the, in the macro context, it seems like a slight departure from, from what we've come to know Richard Brookheiser's book to be. Well, I think there were two reasons. Uh, one was we have this uh, national and really international discussion of nationalism. It, it's the hot topic. Uh, there are nationalistic movements in you know, you name the country, it spans the globe. And some of them are sinister, some of them are not, but but they're all out there. So I was thinking, what is American nationalism all about? What are the characteristics of our nationalism? And my conclusion was that it was our uh, concern with liberty, the pursuit of liberty, the devotion to the idea of liberty that distinguishes our nation from all others. And the second reason for saying that is we're kind of ignoring that concept these days. I mean, these days it seems like we're in a little bit of a trough in our awareness of that. When you you listen to the political arguments uh, on the right and the left in both parties, uh, liberty doesn't seem to be uh, in people's minds uh, maybe the way it should be. So I thought those were the two reasons for addressing this concept in a book. Now, because you were, you were specific about, about the American narrative, what is liberty in the American context as you define it, sir? Well, it is uh, the liberty to 
uh, have power over the fruits of your labor. It's the liberty to control your own life and your own conscience, so long as you do not infringe on the liberty of others. Uh, it is a personal thing. It's not the liberty of the country, although that's important. We had a struggle for independence. We had to free ourselves from Britain and the British Empire. But independent struggles don't necessarily result in liberty, and unfortunately most of them in the recent history of the world probably haven't. So it's, it's a personal concept. It's also a plural concept. I mean, my liberty is your liberty. Our liberty is everyone else's liberty. We, we can't just win it for ourselves alone. It has to be for our brothers and sisters. Now, now it's common, uh, at least in the, in the, in the circles that, that I travel in, to begin America's waltz with liberty, if, if not when shots were fired in Lexington in 1775. Well, certainly um, the waltz begins in J July 4th, 1776. But you begin this text roughly 150 years earlier at Jamestown. And explain, explain why that was crucial to your underpinnings of this book. Well, I, I certainly don't want to minimize the Declaration of Independence. Oh, we're going to get there, don't worry. Revolution. <laughs> right. But, but that was the fruition of trends that had been going on for a long time that went right back to the earliest days of our colonial experience. And you can see that in the establishment of certain liberties and rights that, that we already had. Uh, I start with Jamestown 400 years ago, because uh, in the summer of 1619, there was the first meeting of what was called the General Assembly of Jamestown. And this was the governor, his advisors, all those men were picked in London by the investment company that ran the colony. But there were also 22 Burgesses who were elected from each of the settlements that made up the Jamestown colony. And these men were elected by vote. And then the General Assembly itself, when it met, they decided issues by vote. Everyone in it had a vote. The governor had one. His advisors each had one. The Burgesses each had one. So this was the beginning of the first uh, parliamentary body or legislative body in British North America. So that's a very important liberty. That is the liberty of self-rule. Uh, my second instance, 1657, in New Netherland, which is what New York was when it was still a Dutch colony. Uh, this is religious liberty. The governor general at the time, Peter Stuyvesant, uh, a very effective, efficient man, but also a very tyrannical man. He insisted on keeping Quakers out of his colony, and he got a public letter from 30 men in the village of Flushing in what is now Queens. There's still a neighborhood called Flushing there. They wrote to their governor general and said, we cannot obey this edict of yours because we would do unto others as we would have others do unto us. And this is the true law of church and state. So they were telling him, this is before John Locke, you know, this is before philosophers wrote about religious freedom. These were religious men telling Peter Stuyvesant that our faith tells us we have to be welcoming to Quakers and, and to other uh, believers in unpopular religions. And then my third example, 1735, we're, we're still the decades before independence. 
It's a trial in New York of a newspaper editor, John Peter Zenger. He ran a newspaper that criticized the governor of the colony. And after a year of this, the governor got tired of it, and he threw Zenger in, in prison uh, for the crime of seditious libel, which was uh, the doctrine that if you criticize people in authority, you could lead to rebellion or bloodshed. Therefore, it was illegal to do it. And at Zanger's trial, uh, his uh, friends brought him a lawyer from Philadelphia, a man named Andrew Hamilton. He was the best lawyer in, in, in colonial America at the time. And he basically persuaded the jury to ignore the law. He told them it is a right of free men to complain when they are being misruled, and that it is very important for free men to have the liberty to expose and oppose uh, their their rulers when they are making mistakes. Because if they don't have the liberty to do that, the only alternative is revolution. And the jury acquitted Zanger, and the, the effect of that was that the colonial press in America became the freest in the world because there was no point bringing prosecutions under this law of seditious libel because juries wouldn't stand for it. So these are important steps that were taken even before uh, the Declaration of Independence. And, and I, I'm guessing, I'm just going to make an assumption that um, the trial of John Peter Zenger was probably something that uh, President John Adams did not read when um, uh, pushing through the Alien and Sedition Acts. I'm just going to go on a limb there. Uh, well, the, uh, the, the law of sedition, you know, it took a while to, uh, to settle this. Uh, Zanger's lawyer was saying that there was a liberty to publish true criticisms. Now, the Sedition Act under President John Adams uh, admitted truth as a defense. So, in other words, if you were charged with sedition under that law and you could say in court, well, what I said about John Adams was true, that was supposed to be a defense. Now, we have since, we have since moved way beyond that. We allow people to say things that are untrue. We allow people to say things that are, that are crazy, that are fantastic, so long as you're not uh, libeling a private person, uh, so long as you're not... Um, advocating uh, a violence in a very specific way. In other words, you know, go to Rick Brookheiser's house tonight at 10 o'clock and, and make sure you bring guns because we want to shoot him. You know, that, that, that you can't do. You can't make direct threats. But we do allow, uh, uh, we give very great latitude to false statements to fake news. I mean, that is all comes under the heading of, of the liberty of free expression. Now, um on page 87, in the chapter where you do talk about um, the Declaration of Independence, uh, you write, the, uh, in, the, in the very last, uh, the last two sentences you write, but the Declaration of Independence is about more than throw the rascals out. Our nationhood begins with an essay on liberty. And, and if they, I, mean, I guess what I was looking, when, when it struck me when I read that, I guess in some measure due to the uniqueness of the American Revolution, um, were we just fortunate in, in that in most revolutions, uh, you have the revolution and then you start the practice or the trying to figure out how to govern. But because, mm -hmm. of, the because of our configuration, we were governing even before the revolution. And, th and does, that, does that in any way influence this narrative of liberty that you're putting forth? Well, yes, it does. And I, I think uh, that's why 
it's so important to begin at Jamestown in 1619. Uh, that was the first experiment in a measure of colonial self-government, and all the other colonies in British North America eventually followed that pattern. So by the time we flash forward to uh, the American Revolution, 1775 and 76, Americans have had a, a long experience of quite a considerable measure of self-government. Uh, they, they mostly didn't choose their governors. Those were, those were chosen in London. And, and where they had two house legislatures, generally the upper house was, uh, was, was you know, picked by the governor or picked in some undemocratic way. But the lower houses, the more populous houses, um, equivalent to the House of Representatives today, they were popularly elected in each of the 13 colonies. So we already had quite a taste of this. And this is why the, uh, the regulations that the British were uh, passing after the French and Indian War ended, you know, in their efforts to raise money to, to pay for the war that they had just won, struck us as so onerous uh, because we weren't making those decisions. They were coming down from London. They were decrees from across the ocean, and we didn't like it, and we finally ended up disliking it so much we rebelled. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with journalist, author, historian, and senior editor of the National Review, Richard Brookheiser, and we're discussing his latest book, Give Me Liberty, a history of America's exceptional idea. And I, I want to move ever so slightly to the Constitution, and, and, and I'd like to have you if, expound, if, if, if you could, when you wrote um, uh, about James Madison, the Madison, uh, the Constitution is a web of interlocking parts. James Madison argued that it is a it is, it's very complexity guaranteed liberty. And could you expand on how so, and, and how did you mean that? Well, one of the ideas that Madison and other supporters of the Constitution had to overcome was that free countries, that republics, only worked when they were small. Uh, this was an idea people had because a lot of the ancient um, examples, Greek city-states, they were tiny. It would be one city in the surrounding countryside, and that was it. So how could... Uh, America, which it, which even then went from Maine to Georgia, how could something so large have a uh, you know a more tight knit government, which is what what the Constitution is proposing? And then the answer that that Madison and his allies came up with, particularly Madison, is that no bigger republics are actually safer because it is harder in a large republic for any one faction to take power. In other words, if there's some mobilized minority uh, that's out for its own good, out for its own interests, it's actually rather easy for groups like that to take power in a single city, much more difficult if you're talking about a country as big as the United States was. And this is a theme that Madison uh, developed at the Constitutional Convention and also in the essays that, that he writes in favor of the Constitution afterwards, the Federalist Papers. But what, what I was uh, interested, I mean, you can say a million things about the Constitution. It's, it's a fascinating and complex document. But the, the three things I most wanted to pick out in it were that the executive was going to be elected. In other words, he was not going to be a king. 
There are no titles of nobility. The Constitution forbids both the state governments and the federal government from issuing titles of nobility. And third, even though there are hundreds of thousands of slaves in the United States, slavery is not mentioned in the document. Whenever it's referred to, uh, it's, it's, it's done with coded language, persons held to labor, or persons. They don't specifically say slaves, and, and Madison said at the Constitutional Convention when they were debating this language, he said it would be wrong to admit in our Constitution the principle that men could be held as slaves. Now this, even though James Madison himself is a slaveholder, but that reflects the fact that, that most of the slaveholders at that convention, not all of them, but most of them, thought that slavery was a bad thing. They thought it was something they'd been born into. Uh, they hoped it would wither away over time. They didn't, you know, they didn't have any, any specific ideas of how, to, uh, how they could end it themselves, certainly not at a national level, although some people were already doing this at the state level. So these three things, no kings, no nobility, no mention of slaves, you add them all up, it means there are no ranks of persons recognized in the Constitution. Uh, we do not have a stratified society recognized in our founding fundamental law. Now, in your, um, uh, in your, in your list of things you were interested in, when, when you did, you mentioned slavery, I could hear some enterprising, well-read individual pushing back on you and saying, well, then, Richard Brookheiser, how do you square that the probably the, the piece uh, mo that was most heavily edited in the original copy of the Declaration of Independence was Jefferson's indictment on King George and the slave trade? And your response would be? Well, that um, they they wanted to keep that out of there so as not to... Uh, make a political issue with the states which were still interested in importing slaves. Now, Jefferson is from Virginia. Virginia didn't want to import any more slaves, partly for, you know, good reasons, people thinking that slavery was wrong, also because Virginia had enough slaves. You know, and if you bring more in, it lowers the value of the slaves who were there to their owners. Uh, in Georgia and South Carolina, there was a different different economic situation. They were still expanding to new, you know, uh, putting new territory in cultivation. So they, at that time, 1776, and for some decades thereafter, they wanted more slaves. So that that was an issue they didn't want to get into. I think they also didn't. Uh, they also feared looking hypocritical. I mean, we we are we are criticizing the British for foisting the slave trade on us and. Certainly Britain did that, but it was also true that we were willing buyers. So they just, they just wanted, in the Declaration, they wanted to steer around that. Now, I should say that in, in my book, which is uh, 13 chapters, 13 episodes, each of them producing an important document about liberty, some of them are documents that lay down principles for the first time. Others are documents that plug holes that fill up gaps. And there have been great gaps in America's struggle for liberty. The, the, obviously, the greatest and one of the most long-lasting was the presence here of chattel slavery, which begins as early as 1619, just weeks after the Jamestown General Assembly finishes meeting. 
the privateer, the White Lion, shows up in Jamestown, and the colony buys, as they said at the time, 20 and odd Negroes off this ship, and they are the first slaves in British North America. And, and slavery will persist until the 13th Amendment, uh, 1865, after the Civil War uh, ends. That's when it's ratified. So uh, there, there is work to be done to make these ideals real. Uh, the other example of that is giving women the right to vote, uh, which they did have here and there uh, before, before the 19th Amendment is, is passed in 1920. There, there were examples, for instance, uh, the state of New Jersey let women vote from 1776 to 1807. And didn't Wyoming and that, have it also? Well, Wyoming is the first uh, the first territory in uh, in the late 19th century to let women vote, and then some other territories in the West follow it, and then some Western states and a few more states before the amendment is passed. I just mentioned New Jersey because it's a funny thing that that very few people know about, but uh, women who passed the property qualification could vote in New Jersey for 31 years after the revolution. And the reason was because the first New Jersey Constitution did not use the word freemen, it said inhabitants, when it talked about voting. So people noticed this, women noticed this. And if you, they had a property qualification, you had to have X amount of dollars to be able to vote. Now the problem here for women is that under the legal doctrine of that day, Wives did not own property. The husbands owned all the property in a marriage. So married women are out of luck. But if you were a single woman or a widow and you passed the New Jersey property qualification, you could vote until 1807. And there were enough of these women that they actually had a name. They were called the petticoat vote. It was a recognized voting block that people, you know, politicians tried to get. And unfortunately, the the vote was taken away from them. They were scapegoated for a spectacularly corrupt election that happened early in the 19th century in New Jersey. And you know, everybody in New Jersey kind of had a spasm of, oh, woe is woe is us. We we ran this terribly corrupt election. Let's fix everything by taking the vote away from women. So, you know, so that did happen, and that had to be repaired. You know, I was when I was reading your text. One of the things that sort of jumped out at me, because you, you, you begin uh, very uh, persuasively with, with the whole thesis of liberty and where, and where, it, be, where it begins uh, in the American narrative, but then when we get around 1830s, 1840s, I mean, there seems to be a lot going on. In there, there's, there's the Monroe Doctrine is, 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 a, is, is uh, happening, then you have the Seneca Falls Declaration, and then you have the abolitionist movement. All these things are starting to coalesce. How, what, what does that mean for liberty, as you, as you wrote in, in, in your office? Well, I, I, I'm really going to like repeat and elaborate on, on the point I just made, which is that there have been gaps. Uh, there have been failures to apply the principles that we know are right. And it takes effort to correct those. I mean, they they won't just correct themselves. I think in the founding era, uh, a lot of the founders who thought slavery was wrong hoped that it would wither away. You know, why did they hope that? Well, uh, 
some of the biggest slave plantations in the country uh, were in the Chesapeake, and they were growing tobacco, and the tobacco market had been in a long decline for decades. So I think people thought, well, you know, this this economic model isn't working anymore, so no doubt the slaves who are part of it, uh, the whole thing will just wither up and die. Well, you know, it didn't. Uh, we had the cotton gin, and then cotton became the great crop, and there was certainly uh, a demand for cotton and then uh, a demand for slave labor uh, to grow it. So uh, so these, these, these gaps existed. They had to be rectified. And, uh, you know, and it, and it takes time and effort. Now, you mentioned the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments, uh, which is 1848, and that's a women's rights convention in upstate New York. And one of the things they call for is that women should have the right to vote. And that's very much connected with the abolition movement. Um, the women who organized that meeting and who attended, uh, they were all also abolitionists. One of the men who attended the meeting, because about a third of the people who were there uh, and who signed the document were men, was Frederick Douglass, uh, the, the, the former slave, the journalist, the great abolitionist who lived in Rochester, New York, he came to Seneca Falls. He wrote about the convention in his own newspaper, the North Star. He spoke at the convention. He spoke in favor of the provision to let women have the right to vote. So the, the abolition movement and the women's rights movement were very closely linked. Now, uh, slavery ends before women get to vote because slavery is the, uh, the, the issue that ignites the Civil War, which is like the... Um, uh, uh, what is it? It's the great black hole that sucks everything political into it in the center of the 19th century. And it, it kind of shoves every other issue aside, uh, including women's rights. And so it takes a while for that, for women's rights to become a priority again. And the amendment that gives women the right to vote doesn't happen until after World War I. But you can see that the two things at the beginning of their struggle, they were linked. Well, so I guess sort of the irony, uh, as you were giving your answer then, sir, the irony seems to me that um, the you see the split within uh, within the 15th Amendment because, you know, the, the delegates at Seneca Falls, especially the women, wanted the 15th Amendment to include women the right to vote. And then it, it was it was sort of specifically for Negro men. And then Frederick Douglass tries to assuage them. So even so, no, none of us are as moral as the ideals we hold. Is that is that pretty much the narrative? Well, that's often the case. Although the argument that Frederick Douglass is making to his uh, to his sisters, who've been comrades in the in the fight for abolition and who want women to have the right to vote now, he says, "Look, women are not being." hunted down because they are women and hung from trees and lampposts because they are women. That is what is happening to black men in the South as, as Reconstruction is unfolding. And that's why they need right now the right to vote. They need, they need a political self-defense because of the dangerous situation that they are in. So he's, you know, he's, he's making an argument based on the news, based on, <laughs> on what is happening. Uh, I guess I, we cannot um, talk about uh, liberty in any really full context if we, if we don't at least touch on 
the chapter in which you um, talk about Abraham Lincoln's speech that contained, what, roughly 258 words thereabout. I mean, we, 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 we've got to stop by Gettysburg some, uh, and give us some of your thoughts of, about the importance of, of that address in this landscape of liberty. Well, it's, it's, it's like the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it, it's famous, everybody knows it, and there's just a lot there, and there's a lot to say about it. Uh, the most important thing he's doing is he's calling for a new birth of freedom. Now, he's not calling for a birth of new freedom. Okay, he's he's not saying, well, we didn't un we didn't understand freedom. We we have to have a new concept of it. He is saying we did understand freedom. We knew what freedom and liberty were. We simply weren't extending it to black men and women as we ought to have done, and that's why we had this civil war. That's why we're making it right. But he's not turning his back on the past. I mean, he begins the Declaration by referring, he begins the Gettysburg Address right, right. by referring to the Declaration, four score and seven years ago. That's, that's 1776. And all men are created equal. That's Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration. And then he ends the Gettysburg Address Speaking of government of the people, by the people, and for the people, that is a reference to the preamble to the Constitution, which begins, we the people mm -hmm. of the United States of America do ordain and establish this Constitution. So he is wrapping himself in these two founding documents, the Declaration and the Constitution. And that's what makes what, what makes um, the, the power of the Gettysburg Address comes from him locating it in the mainstream of American thought and of American political achievement. And what he is saying is we have to build on this and we have to make the structure complete, but we're not starting a brand new thing. This is where we've begun. Let's keep going. Uh, I'd like for you to, if you, in the time we have left, to juxtapose um, two presidents, uh, that you also feature in the book to additional presidents beyond Lincoln. Uh, one is Franklin Roosevelt, the other is Ronald Reagan. And, and, um, and are they not, I guess, in one sense, sort of bookends, you know, in the Cold War trajectory? And, um, and, and explain how they, they both fit into your uh, liberty paradigm. Right. Well, there, there are three of the episodes I picked that have to do with, with foreign affairs. And that that may seem a little paradoxical because this is a book about American liberty and, and why it's the centerpiece of American nationalism. But, you know, the world is always there. We're always, we're always in the world. We always have been in the world since colonial times. And so what happens in the world and what happens to liberty in the world can be very meaningful to us. Uh, I have the Monroe Doctrine in there because... President Monroe is telling the powers of Europe, we don't want you to recolonize Spain's uh, former possessions in Latin America, which are all gaining their independence now. And we also don't want you to turn them back into kingdoms. We don't want you sending European princes and sovereigns over here to be the new rulers of Mexico and, and Buenos Aires and, uh, and, and Colombia. Uh, we don't want your, your countries to have power over here, and we don't want your political systems to be brought over here. 
And that, that, was a, that was a very, I think, important statement that he made. That's 1823. Uh, we flash forward to the 20th century, uh, 1940, Franklin Roosevelt, he's, he's just been reelected uh, president for his uh, third term. Uh, the Nazis have been in power in Germany since 1933, the fascists in Italy much longer. Uh, Jap Japan is under a military dictatorship, and all these countries are making aggressive moves on, on their neighbors. And Roosevelt is, uh, is very worried that Britain, which is now being bombarded by Nazi Germany from the air, and its ships are being sunk in the Atlantic, uh, Britain is at risk of falling unless we help it. So he goes on the radio to tell the American people that our liberty depends on Britain being able to maintain its own, that they are fighting a common threat for us, and it is in our interests and according to our principles that we should help them. So we will become, says Roosevelt, the arsenal of democracy. Now, he's not saying at that point, it's December 1940, he's, he's trying to avoid saying that we will get in the war. In, in fact, he says we won't get in the war. But, you know, if you become an arsenal, that's a little more than just a bank or a food pantry. You know, an <laughs> arsenal is, 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 a, is a collection of weapons. So if we are the arsenal of democracy, we are arming one of the contestants in this war it's certainly a step closer. But Richard, we were just giving, we were just lending a neighbor garden hose. <laughs> that, well, that was that was Roosevelt's wonderful right. argument. Yeah. You know, the house is on fire. Uh, he needs a hose to put it out, and so uh, I'll lend him my hose. I'm not going to ask him to pay for it uh, first before he puts the fire out. Now, if the hose comes back damaged, then I expect him to pay for it. But yes, I'll 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 give him my hose so he can put out his fire. <laughs> Now, and then I also had Ronald Reagan, uh, 47 years after that, 1987, his speech before the Berlin Wall in his second administration. And this is after decades of the Cold War, uh, which was the uh, slow-motion World War that followed World War II. And uh, the Soviets have done... They have a new leader, and he's not just a new person. He seems like a new kind of person, Mikhail Gorbachev. He said we have to make some changes. There has to be uh, restructuring, and there has to be uh, openness. His, the Russian words were perestroika and glasnost. And so Reagan wanted to put him on the spot. Uh, he came to Berlin, and he said, if, if the Soviets mean this, then what they can do is that... Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, you can come here and tear down this wall. And this is a wall across the center of Berlin uh, that the Soviet client state East Germany had put up in 1961 to prevent East Berliners and East Germans from going to West Berlin and the West. Uh, it was certainly not the bloodiest division in the Cold War. There had been 137 people killed by that time trying to cross it. Um, that doesn't sound like a lot compared to, to actual shooting wars, but it was happening in the middle of a city. You know, it was happening in the middle of a great city. People were being gunned down because they wanted to move a few blocks. So there was something particularly notorious about that. And Reagan picked this spot 
to issue this challenge to the Soviets saying, if you really mean reform, one thing you can do is come here and tear down this wall. Uh, two years later, the wall gets torn down uh, by the German people themselves. Uh, Gorbachev has indicated that he won't hold on to Eastern Europe by force. So the tear down this wall speech didn't have an immediate effect, but it certainly told the world and it certainly told Eastern Europe that the United States uh, was on their side and that we wanted this to happen. We wanted the zone of liberty to be extended to them. And so here is here's yet another extension. The Monroe Doctrine was about the Western Hemisphere. No kings in the Western Hemisphere. The Arsenal of Democracy was about saving Britain from the Nazis. No Nazis in Britain. Reagan was saying in 1987, no wall in Berlin in the heart of Europe. Uh, and And each of these steps was very carefully considered. We weren't saying, okay, we're going to fight for liberty for everyone everywhere in the world right now. We were taking carefully weighed steps to advance it in places where we thought our own liberty was also at stake. Now, finally, um, it, uh, since it is a well-known fact, that the author is of a book is always smarter after the book has been released. Um, well, I mean, you, you know that you know that well. That, that that's a long it's a long tradition, Richard. If you didn't know, that. <laughs> but uh, if you could add a postscript uh, to give me liberty, what would it be? Well, I'll tell you the question. Uh, this is a question that's already come up several times, even in only the less than a week that the book has been out. People say. Well, all right. What what would be a liberty document after 1987? You know, why did you stop there? And I say, I'm not I'm not putting anything in this book that is going to ruffle people's feathers because of what's happening politically right now. This book is not like policy positions for the 2020 election. This book is not to hold your hand to tell you who to vote for the next time you go in the voting booth. This is a book to look at where we've come, how we got here, and to inspire you to look at these brave men and women who made these statements, who sometimes put their lives and their liberty on the line by signing off on them. And we need that because liberty is not self-sustaining. It's not a perpetual motion machine. I think we've had a pretty good record of it for 400 years. Uh, we've, we've, we've laid out inspiring principles, and we have repaired our gaps and our shortcomings. But that doesn't mean necessarily we'll continue to do so. We'll only continue to do so if, like Lincoln at Gettysburg, we look back to where we've been and, and resolve to build on that. The book, Give Me Liberty, uh, A History of America's Exceptional Idea. Uh, uh, I, I, if, I, if I just throw my two cents in, I, I, I love the book because I love the fact that you were willing to grab, grapple with not only the, the highest ideals of liberty, but also um, the, the, the contradictions in, in, in the human ap application of, of, of that. And it's, and it's complicated, and I appreciate you grappling with the complexity. Uh, Richard Brookheiser, thank you so much, sir, for joining me one more time. Okay, thank you for having me. Okay, take care.
The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.